0: Welcome to another episode of the Aerospace Engineering Podcast. My name is Rainer Groh, Research Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and on this show I have conversations with aerospace pioneers about new technologies at the cutting edge of aerospace design and research. Today we have a very special episode with one of the rocket startup companies that is breaking down commercial barriers to space. If you enjoy this or any of my previous conversations, then please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star rating. More than anything else, this helps to spread the word about the show because we get recommended to more people online. We'll begin the show in a moment, but first a word from our sponsor, the Society for the Advancement of Material and Process Engineering. If you're an engineering business that could benefit from new materials and manufacturing processes, then Sampi might be the ideal partner for you. Sampi is the only technical society that provides enhanced educational opportunities, knowledge transfer, and professional engagement, in all fields of materials and processes. To find out how Sampi can provide your business with growth and educational opportunities, visit Sampi's website at nasampe.org or consider attending one of Sampi's conferences such as the Sampi Technical Conference and Exhibition hosted in sunny Long Beach, California in May this year. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
1: One, zero, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Lift off on Apollo 11. and uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed.
0: Today I'm talking to Lachlan Matchett, who's the VP of Propulsion at Rocket Lab. Rocket Lab is a startup rocket company with operations both in the United States and New Zealand with the mission of removing barriers to commercial space by frequent launches to low-Earth orbit. Rocket Lab was founded in 2006 by the current CEO, Peter Beck, and has since been working on democratizing access to space by designing lightweight, cost-effective, and high-frequency rocket launch services. The current conundrum of many space technology companies that want to launch small satellites into space is that they do not have access to a dedicated launch service. This essentially means that they have to piggyback onto launches scheduled for other purposes, such as larger satellites or supply missions to the International Space Station. The problem with this is really twofold. Given the infrequent launch schedules and limited transport capacity into space, a ticket onto any rocket flying to low Earth orbit is hard to come by. Second, these rocket launches will typically only target a single orbit, which is likely to be suboptimal for many, if not all, the smaller CubeSats on board. One analogy that I like is to think of bigger rockets such as Falcon Heavy as a moving and relocation service, and the smaller rockets as developed by Rocket Lab as FedEx. If you're going to be hauling an entire colony of humans to Mars, as Elon Musk intends to do with SpaceX, then you're going to need a moving company. But if you want quick shipping of goods into space, you want FedEx. What is more, when we're talking about cheap access to space, it is not entirely clear if bigger also means better. For example, Airbus believed that airlines would want bigger and more efficient aircraft, hence the massive A380. But the future of the A380 is uncertain given that its sales record did not meet expectations. In fact, what airlines seem to want is frequency to suit their specific needs. So will the space technology companies that want to place a fleet of CubeSats into orbit, right now and right then, be willing to queue for a spot on a fully-booked Falcon Heavy flight months ahead? Or will they rather decide that a low-cost launcher tailored for small satellites might get them into space faster and cheaper? Well, to provide small payloads with a flexible and dedicated launch vehicle, Rocket Lab has developed the Electron rocket. The Electron is a two-stage rocket that can be tailored to unique orbital requirements and provides frequent flight opportunities at personalized schedules. The Electron's first test was conducted in May last year, and on January 21st of this year, Electron's second test successfully placed three CubeSats into orbit. In this test, Rocket Lab also demonstrated its ability to place different satellites into different orbits using a third kick stage. This kick stage is a valuable capability for customers as it means that different satellites on board can be placed into their ideal orbit. In terms of the engineering, there are many interesting features to the Electron rocket. Rocket Lab's engineers have been able to develop incredibly lightweight carbon composite tanks. That are compatible with liquid oxygen, which is a significant challenge because the extreme cold temperatures of liquid oxygen can make carbon composites brittle and prone to leaking. But one of the key innovations on the Electron rocket is its Rutherford engine that Lachlan Matchett and his team have developed over the last five years. Rutherford is the first oxygen kerosene-powered engine to use 3D printing for all primary components, and benefits from a new propulsion cycle powered by electric propellant pumps, that reduce mass and replace much of the hardware of typical tuber machinery with software. In fact, the Rutherford engine can be printed in an astounding 24 hours, and this is one of the driving factors behind Rocket Lab's cost efficiency and high target launch frequency. So in this episode, Lachlan and I talk about Rocket Lab's business model, the recent launch success, and of course, some of the engineering highlights of the Rutherford engine. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Lachlan Matchett. Okay, so I'm here with uh, Lachlan Matchett, who is the VP for Propulsion of Rocket Lab. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you today, Lachlan. Welcome to the to the podcast.
2: Good morning, Andrew. i um, pleased to be here.
0: So um, I've been really looking forward to this conversation for the last couple of weeks, in fact, um, because Rocket Lab is, you know, one of those companies that's doing really exciting things in, in terms of pushing the engineering towards democratizing access to space. And uh, we're going to be getting into some of the, the technical details of what you've been working on in just a while. But before we get there, I'd really just like you to provide you know a brief overview of your personal background and uh, how you ended up at Rocket Lab. Cool,
2: no worries. So uh, I've been at Rocket Lab for a little over five years now. Uh, I'm currently 27 years old, and I, before I started at Rocket Lab, I had a uh, went through university. I did a degree in mechanical engineering and a master's in uh, trajectory optimization, and those two, those two sort of skills sort of pushed me in the direction of Rocket Lab. I had a bit of a natural interest in in rocketry and uh, and what Rocket Lab was doing. Um, Throughout university, uh, extracurricular activities included building building rockets in the garage and building rockets in, in the uni workshop, and and that kind of just transi- transitioned into into my studies and, and coming to work at Rocket Lab.
0: Oh wow! So you were actually what building model rockets while you were an undergraduate student? Uh, yeah, that's right. All right, that's really cool. Yeah, I've I've been tinkering with some you know homemade uh, little model rockets myself, and yeah, it's it's a cool. I mean, if you're interested in engineering, it's definitely a really neat uh, hobby to take up. Um, yeah, so I was I was you know you, as you just said you're 27 years old, and in fact, as far as I'm aware, you won the New Zealand Young Engineer of the Year award uh, in 2017. Um, And I I guess a lot of perhaps seasoned rocket engineers might consider consider you to be, you know, an incredibly young VP of propulsion for, you know, working at a major rocket manufacturer. How did you you develop the expertise to basically lead uh, the design and development on a new rocket engine? Because you have been, you know, been involved and responsible for the initial design of the Rutherford engine, which is the main engine uh, on the electron uh, rocket of Rocket Lab. So... Basically, apart from you tinkering in a in a shed, perhaps in a workshop at the university, how did you uh, develop the expertise to lead the design? Yeah, so I, I think um, having having that VP title wasn't all about uh, experience. Uh, I, I, I sure have gained a lot of that over the, the last five years, and I did bring some of that to to Rocket Lab as well before I, before I started. Uh, I,
2: I think some of the additional leadership characteristics, uh, are just having a real passion for what you do, if you've got that passion you, you'll really drive to be the best and, and that's really important. Um, the other one is uh, just your really good work ethic and uh, being able to make good decisions no matter, no matter what's really going on, so you're always presented with a couple of paths or you know know what sort of paths you can take and as long as you're choosing those right paths it's that's pretty important. Uh, and, and the other ones, I think, having a, a real respect for the team members uh, around you and being able to to work with that team and, I guess, collaboratively uh, group that experience together within, within that team and uh, work as sort of one entity rather than just yourself and, and make those decisions uh, that are sort of based on uh, all the experience of, of those around you. So I think... I think those characteristics have really um, uh, helped help me, and I've, I've really focused on, on those uh, to, to get me through despite my uh, young age. The, uh, and it's, it's just really, really great at Rocket Lab. We've, we've got a bunch of very highly talented engineers uh, and, and technicians from all the way through that contribute to, to every aspect of, of making decisions and their experience, uh, whether it be small or large. From cleaning how, how to clean a component all the way through to a design decision or management strategies, uh, but we've, we've just got so many um, so many clever people here that uh, can, can can contribute to to what we're doing. You know, like we've got 50 still have 50 positions open as we're a growing company, and we're we're really looking to hire more people that can can contribute to to this this I guess successful company that we are today um, founded on, on these
0: sorts of principles. Alright, so you said you are definitely, you're currently looking forward to recruit 50 new engineers, is that is that what yep. you're saying? Oh wow, yep. so oh that's very quite cool. So is it generally let's say in Rocket Lab's culture to have quite, you know, to give young engineers responsibility early on? You just mentioned the the team that you're working on, is the team quite young as well or is it a good balance between uh, pe- people with experience and 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 young engineers.
2: Yeah, so that's that's a good question. Uh, I think there's a good balance. We've got a lot of, of senior expertise that that can draw on many many years of experience. But I think to to go with the startup trend, we we do do follow that quite closely. Uh, startups are generally a, a company with a lot more younger younger people there. Uh, but we also have a lot of uh, experience in the, the team as well. So uh, not really uh, out of line for a typical startup, really.
0: Okay, yeah. So getting to Rocket Lab, I mean, so we've, we've, we've mentioned the company, but what is, what is Rocket Lab's you know, main value proposition? What is the market that uh, Rocket Lab is is addressing? Uh,
2: so Rocket Lab's uh, revolution that revolutionising the way we access space. So we're, we're removing the commercial barriers through the development of, of lightweight, cost-effective and high-frequency uh, launch services to, um, to offer unprecedented access to space for the small satellite market. So that's that's our key market. And we're founded on the, the belief that uh, those small satellites require a dedicated uh, launch vehicle to get them into into the uh, orbits that they need and sort of like, liberate them from the, the choke that they are in with uh, the riding as secondary payload on, on uh, primary payload. Uh, so, this just enables these small satellites to get straight into the orbit they want at high frequency. So, this includes uh, weather um, mapping satellites, uh, ship and airplane tracking satellites, and Earth observation satellites, too. So the rideshare model uh, needs to be broken down, and that's what we're doing. So this uh, this often this rideshare model often means that CubeSats and small satellites don't get to choose their orbit or their launch date, and they're at the mercy of those uh, of those primary payloads. So it could mean for those small satellites they've got to wait years to get onto orbit, uh, which has huge implications for for those guys trying to build businesses. So yeah, our value proposition. Is to create a dedicated small satellite launch vehicle that uh, can get these
0: satellites into orbit quickly and frequently. All right. So it sounds like, as an analogy, you're almost doing exactly the opposite of what perhaps you know a lot of car-sharing companies are trying to do at the moment, whereby we're trying to pull as many as people as possible into a single vehicle, and you're basically doing the opposite of of being able to provide different satellite providers. A, uh, basically the, the access to the orbit that they, that they would ideally want rather than kind of ride-sharing, perhaps. Um, so what does what the launch schedule then look like? Are you How, how often will you be launching to space uh, or to low-Earth orbit in the future?
2: Uh, so our goal is to, to get to once-a-week operations, but our, our launch site is actually... Uh,
0: uh, Licensed launch every seventy-two hours, so that's mm-hmm. our ultimate goal is to be uh, if we can launch every every seventy-two hours. All right, so yeah, so that is very rapid. So um, I guess a lot of people will have heard, you know, of the of the big, I guess, upstart rocket company, which is SpaceX, and SpaceX is very much focused on building big rockets, you know, rockets that then, uh, are or are meant to take us to to Mars. So how does Rocket's, Rocket Lab's business model d- differ and then how does that influence the, the rocket design?
2: Yep, okay. So our our whole business strategy is opening up space by frequency and not size. So uh, we set out from the get-go to develop a launch vehicle that can be produced at mass scale and launched really frequently and, and we've achieved this in several ways. A couple of those ways include uh 3D printing of the Rutherford engines where we can turn the machine on and it, it runs overnight and it requires uh, and it can produce
0: uh, all the engine components within a matter of hours. Uh, another another example as I've mentioned already is, is that our launch range is the first uh, orbital private launch facility in the world and is licensed to launch every 72 hours. So there are a couple of examples on, on why our business model Uh, As the way it is, and it's all about fast access to space, not worrying about size. All right. So, in in, as far as I'm aware, in May 2017, you had your first test, which was called "It's a Test." That that was the name of that operation. And then, just in January, on January 21st, you had the the second launch, which was called "Still Testing," in which you successfully launched three cubesats into orbit using the uh, rocket labs electron rocket so first off i'd you know of course like to congratulate you on achieving that milestone you must be you know super psyched to achieve that um, but then afterwards you also announced in a, in a press release that you were t- testing a, a new capability called the kick stage so tell me about the novelty of, of this capability and what the benefits are for your customers
2: so, the, the kick stage is an additional uh, uh, rocket motor uh, that does the final push into a trajectory uh, and it takes us uh, into the satellite's preferred final trajectory from, uh, from when it, the second stage uh, finishes. So, typically, we would go from an elliptical orbit to a circular orbit, and that, that orbit is much, much preferred by most of our satellites that are doing things like Earth imaging that, that need to be kept at a constant altitude above the, above the Earth. So uh, it also enables us to, to carry multiple satellites, say a dozen CubeSats, where we can drop them off at various uh, various steps around the, around the Earth and actually set up that constellation for that satellite business. And that's a, that's a real key driver for some businesses. It enables them to, to have fast deployment of their constellation into their desired orbit. It means that they can, these, for example, Earth imaging satellites can be uh, spread out around the Earth in a, in a matter of, of hours, and and they can be getting data to the ground and making use of their business case immediately, rather than having to wait, again, dumped out all at once and having to carefully spread each of their satellites out before they they can start uh, reaping the rewards of their constellation.
0: Is there a limit on the amount of burns that this kick stage can do? Uh,
2: there is a uh, given amount of propellant that it carries, uh, so it's it's limited by that.
0: Okay, and is it's really tailored to each mission? Okay, so it can be tailored to each mission. Okay, so that I guess is ideal uh, for for yeah for your customers. So then, in the um, they're still testing of. Uh, the second test in jan- on the January twenty first, there was a, another surprise basically, and that you released a another satellite, uh, the Humanity Star. So, what what is the Humanity Star, and what was the uh, motivation motivation behind launching it?
2: Yeah, okay. So you need to uh, talk to uh, our CEO Peter Bick. Uh, he's the man from <laughs> the staff for the full details. Uh, uh-huh. but I can get- the top line, so the humanity star is designed to be a symbol in the night sky that encourages everyone to look up and really ponder ponder our place within the, the universe. So it was created to, to really encourage people to, to look past terrestrial life and yeah, consider our position as on our small planet in the middle of this vast universe. So hopefully it will encourage conversation. About some of the challenges we're facing on Earth and how we can uh, work together and, and solve these challenges as one.
0: So hopefully, it will also sort of draw some of those people out that weren't uh, weren't going to otherwise be looking at the night sky. that would come out to look at humanity star, but while they're out there, get to get to sort of ponder and the and the space uh, and our vast universe. Yeah, absolutely. I actually very much agree with your CEO on this point, because in, in a lot of ways, you know, we have something like the International Space Station. And to a lot of degrees, what that does when you see it in the night sky is that it makes space travel a lot less abstract. You know, it's no longer just uh, a topic for rocket scientists and astronauts. It's actually something that you can interact with and you can see the ISS or in this case the Humanity Star. Uh, go around the earth, and I think that does cri- you know provide quite a a ni- a nice and tangible link between uh, you know the kind of the last frontier that we have as uh, as a as a human species into space. um so I think that's a absolutely great idea and i think uh, I think the website uh, that you can follow to to track the humanity star is I think just the dot com. so I do uh, encourage all our listeners to uh, to to check their website out so so now getting to the details of the of the engineering so as I said before you're responsible for the or very much responsible for the initial design of the Rutherford engine which powers the electron rocket and you've been involved all the way through from the concept design all the way through to flight qualification and then finally production Um so oh. Uh, tell me about the genesis, perhaps, of, of the engine and your involvement throughout the, the, the project.
2: Yeah, okay. So, uh, as you'd imagine, I've been extremely, heavily involved. It's been a, a very large part of, part of my life over the last last five years. But for Rutherford, we started with a, a blank sheet of paper. And, and we said, right, our business model is to, to launch frequently. And to, to really revolutionise the way we get to space and revolutionise uh, the launch business. So, with with sort of this in mind, we we said, right, we're we're a startup. We want to get there quickly. We want to get there uh, uh, with an engine that's going to be mass producible and and cheap as well. So, one of the initial things we've sort of discovered is is that it's none of it's none of it's easy and but all of it can be solved with with some with clever engineering and a, a key key one for us was 3d printing so we've we've done a significant amount of work on 3d printing and uh, it was just one of those emerging technologies that came out prior uh, at the time of, of electron starting and it was a real a real key driver in in us achieving uh, a really high frequency uh, launch cadence because 3d printing you can walk up to your machine you can you put in load in your print model and press print and you turn back turn up the next day and you've gone and you've printed a, a whole thrust chamber uh, and that's that's really critical compared to traditional engine manufacturing techniques where you might be waiting weeks or months to, to be able to to get your part through the manufacturing process so that's an example of, of one thing that we've've we've gone through and uh, it's been a major challenge getting getting that to um, start to, to finish, but it's been a, a real key driver in the success of, of electron. And another aspect of the engine's um, been a major major thing we've worked on be the electric turbo pumps. So electrons the, the first rocket in the world to be uh, to be electric turbo pump driven. So we have uh, the lithium batteries driving our electric electric motors. And, and again, are another reason why we've we've achieved a, a high-frequency, low-cost rocket is that we can build a, we can we reduce the development time, and we created a product that could could get us through uh, get through really fast iterations and really fast development process to a production solution that's faster than manufactured than a tr- traditional gas generator driven um, turbo pump and and we've continued to refine these details on the on the engine ever since its first hot fire which happened probably a, a year within it was within a year of, of conceiving the electron project and ever since then we've been continuing to refine Rutherford through hundreds and hundreds of hot fires and, and many many minutes
0: of, of runtime. So yeah, I think you're now at five hundred hot fires. Is that correct?
2: Uh, yeah, well, well over that now.
0: Oh right, okay yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so in, I've read on your on the website that so the one of the advantages of using the electric propellant pumps is that you're basically trying to replace a lot of. The kind of mechanical hardware of, of classic turbo machinery yeah. with software. How does how does uh, how can I basically how would I envision that 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 replacement from from hardware to software?
2: Yeah. So, uh, unlike the traditional gas generator that's got quite a complex start cycle. You've got you've got to start your gas generator to spin your pumps to drive your propellants. To your valves and then time your valves to go into your to your um, thrust chamber to, to light the engine. The Rutherford's new electric propulsion cycle, and making use of those electric motors is, and batteries, is simpler because you can basically just
0: turn on your each electric motor and you've got propellant to your to your engine, unlike having a, a just a very complicated um, system in order to get your propellants into into the thrust chamber. So. You just hit go, and uh, it's an electrical signal, that sends those, those signals to those pumps and, and away we go. Alright, so I guess it's probably also in terms of the control systems, I guess you can probably embed a lot more intelligence in terms of controlling the entire system than with uh, with classic uh, hardware terminal turbo- machinery. What about going back to the 3D printing? Um, you've mentioned the reduction in manufacturing time that you can literally just press go and within, I guess, 72 hours have uh, an entire, an entire uh, you know, e- exhaust nozzle or, or, or rocket engine. What inter- w- are there any benefits in terms of printing higher fidelity parts, perhaps parts that weren't possible with subtractive manufacturing and that additive manufacturing really kind of brings to life?
2: Uh, yeah, a good example, is everyone can see on, on our images, is, is the thrust chamber. Um, internal geometry is, is really fantastic with 3D printing, and those complicated shapes just can't be achieved with any other form of manufacturing. So, yeah, things that, items that have got internal geometry, that's where
0: 3D printing really comes to life as a fantastic technology. Mm-hmm. And uh, finally the final thing I'd like to know about though, or talk about the Rutherford uh, rocket engine is the... I, I, I read about a new propulsion cycle online and I was just wondering what does that entail and if you can talk about it how it does differ from perhaps a conventional uh, propulsion cycle. Uh, yeah so just a bit more on
2: those those uh, cycles so the the Standard, pretty standard cycle, for example, what's, what SpaceX are doing, uh, a gas, um, gas generator driven turbo pump, that turbo pump then drives the propellants into the, the thrust chamber is a very standard cycle that's been used uh, from the get-go way back on the Apollo and the, the Saturn uh, V moon rockets. So, yeah, that, that is very very standard cycle. There are tweaks and, and changes that have been made to, to make it more efficient. Uh, however, we, we really decided to completely uh, redefine how we're going to get to a mass-produced high-frequency rocket. And the complexity within a, a turbo pump assembly and a, and that thrust chamber is, is quite high, and it can often drive the cost up significantly, and we just really wanted to move that there remove that barrier. So the that pushed us into looking at the, the new technologies and as as you know with uh, with like the cell phone the, the amount of energy and, and battery life that you get out of them is just increases year on year and and that's what we're sort of making use of is really high efficiency electric motors which are above ninety percent efficient we're looking at uh, batteries that are and always getting better and we can we can utilise those really high efficiencies that, to drive the propellants into our thrust chamber, which is is quite a quite a benefit uh, in terms of uh, in terms of creating a
0: fast, cheap, and yet still highly highly effective and efficient um, rocket engine that's um, caters to our business model and the electron launch vehicle. And in terms of so. I guess you mentioned before that you would want to have uh, a a launch a week. And I think on the website, it was mentioned that these would be at around $5 million, which is, I mean, that's, as far as I'm aware, incredibly cost cost effective. So apart from perhaps the 3D printing and the quick turnover times, how are you going to, you know, how are you bringing the costs down and achieving that frequency of launch? Yeah, okay. So... Yeah, launches is determined by many, many factors, as, as you can imagine, uh, and including the, the, the type of orbit and the complexity of the mission. If we're deploying one satellite or if we're deploying uh, twelve satellites, uh, but our, our dedicated launches we're that at five point seven million US dollars. Uh, so we've we've
2: set out to build a system that could be mass-produced. Although although we've only seen two launches today, uh, we've got many, many more rockets and work now the moment. So um, another way that we're doing this is unlike a traditional company where you'd build a rocket to a specific satellite and, and set, match those, pair those together and, and let them go off and, and launch. We're, we're just produce, we're a production line of rockets. We've got a stream of satellites coming in and we'll just keep, keep a f- constant flow of rockets coming off the line and small satellites coming in and just continue to launch those. So we don't build to a specific satellite, we we build a, a rocket that just the satellite gets fitted to and we launch. So we're not constricting ourselves to one rocket to one satellite and where the design is the design made it together. We we've got a flexible launch system that can can lend itself to to launching very fast and some of the things like 3D printing and, and the way we've designed our our production systems are, specifically
0: for uh, this, this business model. Mm, interesting. So I, one of the other things that I'm interested in is that I, I used to, for a while, I was um, uh, a researcher, a visiting researcher at NASA Langley And uh, I guess in some way that Rocket Labs and, and some of the other new space companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin, the way that they're doing things differently from NASA is that everything is entirely vertically integrated, meaning you do everything from design, manufacturing, processing of materials and launching all in one company. What? Why do you think uh, the new space companies are taking this approach? And so, basically, what are the advantages of this vertical integration?
2: Uh, yeah. So for us, it's, it's all about production speed and production costs. Uh, there's just there's so many advantages. You just strip out the the margins. You don't have a, a rocket engine company making their margin, and you, you have your tank company making their margin, and your fairing company. It's, it's all in one and <laughs> By stripping out those those margins, both in cost and uh, producing the vehicle and operating it at the launch site, you can uh, gain better control of your production schedule, better control of your uh, uh, production costs and, and launch frequency. So for us, controlling all of
0: those uh, enables us to deliver a much better product for our customer. Mm-hmm. All right, and are there, are there any plans to reduce costs further in the future by perhaps you know, going down the route that SpaceX is going in terms of building re- reusable rockets, or is that not something that uh, Rocket Lab is considering?
2: Uh, so no, we've, we've developed a unique model here, which is uh, based on building uh, our own launch vehicles and launching them at our own launch site that enables us to, to launch frequently and, and at a low cost, effectively. And, and that's quite a lot different than other dedicated small launch providers and some large launch providers like SpaceX. So uh, because of that uh, production rate and our unique uh, launch site, uh, reusability isn't a focus for us. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so you've just done, I guess in January, the second test. Um, what is the, 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 the rest of 2018 and perhaps uh, the developments look like in, in the near future? Yeah, so we've got a, a number of internal developments happening. Uh, we, we keep
2: those under wraps, but the uh, the rest of 2018 is looking very full. We've got a, a, a launch coming up uh, fairly soon. We'll be uh, releasing a launch date shortly. And uh, we've got a number, a, a, another handful of, of rockets will be getting away this year. So it's uh, going to be an exciting year for us to, in 2018, we're, we're launching, launching a lot of rockets and really... Um, building
0: on the success we had in January. -hmm. Yeah absolutely. Um, Finally, um, I would just, you know, where would you like uh, our listeners to go to find out a bit more about the company and you said you're hiring as well so in case young engineers are listening or experienced engineers are listening that might want to apply for one of these positions that Rocket Lab has to offer, where would you like um, our listeners to, um, to stay up to date with your developments?
2: Yeah, sounds great. So for real-time updates, just head straight to our Twitter page at Rocket Lab, pretty easy one. Uh, Otherwise, you can head to our website, rocketlabusa.com, for a lot more information about us, and you can can see all the roles uh, that we have on offer at our careers page. So we've got new roles being added every week, and at the moment we've got about 50 roles open between New Zealand and the, the USA. Uh, Those roles uh, anywhere from uh, cleaning, deburring, assembly technicians, all the way to um, manufacturing, engineering, design, engineering, senior management. It's kind of the whole, whole, whole sort of process. So we're, we're after a lot of people. So young. Old, experienced, and not so experienced. We're after a lot of new candidates, so yeah, please have a look at our careers page.
0: Well, Lachlan, you know, thanks a lot for having this conversation. It's been an absolute pleasure, and um, I look, I really look forward to all of the developments that are coming out of New Zealand in the next couple of years.
2: Awesome. Uh, thank you very much, and yes, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. See you.
0: If you want to learn more about Rocket Lab, including links to open positions at the company, then you can find show notes at airspaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast. There you'll also find more information on our sponsor, the Society for the Advancement of Material and Process Engineering, and the world-leading materials technology conference that SAMPE is organizing. And just as a quick reminder, if you can spare a minute, I would be super grateful if you could tell me on Apple Podcasts how you're liking the show. And with that, Thank you very much for listening and talk to you next time.